Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's the Wonky Show. Suella Braverman is gone. Has the threat on a crackdown on international students gone with her? Uh, We've launched new research on belonging. We'll look at the implications for universities. And there's a new review on blended learning. It's all coming up. There was often a miss conception between each party of what support actually was so there was a comment from a student that said they'd you know they'd spoken to lots of people but they'd not got any support and I thought I think the university would have thought oh that person's had lots of contact they've got support and you know sometimes trying to understand what it is people actually mean. Welcome back to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to send an official document from their personal email to a trusted parliamentary colleague as part of policy engagement. As usual, three fantastic guests. In York, Heidi Fraser-Krauss is CEO at JISC. Heidi, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, I have to go with the resignation of the Home Secretary, I'm afraid. (laughs) Yes, it was. Uh, it was quite, quite. It really was quite a moment, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And uh, in Coventry, Ian Dunn is provost at Coventry University. Ian, your highlight of the week, please. Hi, Jim. Well, in a similar vein, just uh, I've regained a love for the news. <laughs> yes, it's, it's almost it's almost as as compelling as the early days of COVID, isn't it? Uh, and, <laughs> and in Hales Owen this week, Sunday Blake is associate editor at Wonky. Sunday, your highlight of the week, please. How, uh, it's going to be a bit of like blowing my own trumpet, but it's going to be the uh, belonging report launch event uh, yesterday, which was so much fun, but also like really inspiring and energetic. And uh, we had hundreds and hundreds of attendees and the chat was just like buzzing with like good practice and like people sharing their knowledge and yeah it made me feel warm and fuzzy and like I have so much sort of inspiration about where we're going from here so yeah fantastic well well, there you go there's a tea up for item two if ever I've heard it so yes we we start this week with international students uh Braverman is out but has a crackdown on international students gone with her Ian I'm not convinced that it's gone with her no um I I think it uh, of course I think it, it it really ought to international students are a fundamental part of of higher education in the UK um absolutely sort of core to the classroom and the research laboratories of of, of UK universities this wonderful sort of uh, resource that we have in this country that um, uh, for some reason politicians of a particular flavour anyway don't seem to like at the moment and I I, I still fail to uh, understand why that is but international students um, everyone knows you know you look at the UK VI data on on this international students come to study they learn they become part of a system and then you know it's not a case that they don't return they're not part of a a migration issue Um, they they, they return home and they they continue that, that that intellectual journey so I, I have no real understanding as to why international students became such a such an issue but I mean Ian that is interesting isn't it because if it's the case that the sector hit the international education target 
10 years early, that at least for a year while they're here, if they're PGTs, or for a few years if they're undergrads, and then the post-study work visa, it does add a bit to migration, doesn't it? And, and significantly, presumably higher if we're hitting targets earlier than the Home Office anticipated. It, it adds a temporary um, uh, but manageable and managed um, uh, pot to the migration story. But one that's very controlled. I think it's you know I think it's ninety nine percent of of all international students uh, return. I think it was the last figure I saw anyway. Um, international students, just the addition, to the value adds to the classroom, to the uh, you know that conversation uh, and the richness that we can bring by bringing international students into into UK higher education uh, is is fundamental. You know, and, and our former Home Secretary. Herself, as an international student who studied in, in, in Paris, you know, I was a, uh, an Erasmus student. That benefit to the self, but the, the, what the individual can take into the, into the classroom is really, is really astonishing. You know, different ways of solving problems, different ways of seeing the, the, the question. Um, a really important part of, um, uh, of education, if, we, if we're truly interested in developing education, which is global, big uh, and, and challenging. Heidi, we are uh, we are led to believe that the blazing row that was the the way the press have re- reported it the blazing row between Liz Truss and Braverman um, the day before her resignation was all about an intended statement on migration with Liz Truss arguing for a liberalisation of immigration to. Uh, uh, prop up the economy and um, Braverman arguing for a kind of crackdown, which we, you know, we have to assume, certainly based on the rumours, was going to be about international students. Do you get a sense that, you know, the kind of uh, the, 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 the liberalise the immigration system, liberalise the economy side of the argument as one for now, or does the sector need to be on kind of permanent guard? I think this is always a, a topic where the sector needs to be on permanent guard. There are always people who look at communities that universities build of international students and some people don't like it I have to say I'm, I'm totally with Ian on this one that you know international students add such a lot to the UK I mean I think the idea that we've got so many people who want to come and study at our universities who our universities are without wanting to overuse the word honestly world class and not to celebrate that I find very strange and um, my other half is a an academic, a researcher, and he has almost all of his research group is uh, international from all sorts of places over the world. And they add an enormous amount. They give back a huge amount to the UK. Um, some of them do stay post, um, post-PhD in particular, but they then go and work in, in high-value industries and really add to our economy. And, you know, that uh, Ian was saying that, that sort of flavour, that difference, that sort of celebration of difference. And also... I hate to use this word, but the soft power piece. Um, under, underestimate that at your peril. You know, lots of people look to the UK as somewhere where democracy really works, where they've had a very high quality education, got to meet lots of different people, and they go back to their nations often to go into positions of power. Um, what's there not to like? So, Sunday, I've uh, you know we've talked on the podcast before about um, where we are with student accommodation, and one of the things that's been happening a lot on the calls that uh, me and Livia have been doing, my colleague Livia, who works with me on students' unions at, at Wonky, is coming across 
um, international PGTs with dependents, one of the kind of sources of concern from um, Braverman, arriving into the country with nowhere to stay. And, you know, lots of cities having none of that family accommodation. That, 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 even outside of the kind of, you know, hot rhetoric from Braverman, that, that there are concerns, aren't there, about, um, you know, the, the kind of infrastructure issue if a city or a town suddenly expands its international student numbers very quickly. Yeah, so this is actually a really difficult uh, area for people to talk about, particularly if we are, you know, of the opinion that international student intake is a really good thing. Um, And I I just want to add on that sort of side point um, that, you know, international students do more for universities in the UK than just income. And I understand that a lot of the sort of conversations on Twitter have been around, look how much, you know, look how many millions or billions of, of pounds they bring into the country. And I get that, you know, fiercely arguing against the libertarian government <laughs> in market values is sort of trying to beat them at their own game. But I do think that there's been a little bit of loss of insight and um, not to... <laughs> to try not to do this but if you do look into my belonging research (laughs) you will see that the international students in the classroom bring a international perspective to the course however on the concept of housing which is what you were asking me about um is this is this is such a pertinent point and it's really really difficult because like it it speaks to very uncomfortable uh discourse and narrative around you know, there's <laughs> there's too many foreigners here and all this kind of stuff. But that's that's not really the issue. The issue is that we have had a student housing crisis building for years now. And it's not just things like international students. It's also widening participation, increasing student numbers. It's also the demographic um, of 18 year olds, uh, you know, rising because of the amount of children born in 2002, 2003. So, you know, there are more students than than we've really got space for. I mean, look at Durham, look at Warwick, look at Manchester. You've got students sleeping outside estate agents. You have students uh, living in hotels. Um, and I think it's not just the amount of uh, space that is inaccessible to students as well. But if we are focusing on international students, this is a group of students who have been routinely and like overproportionately exploited if you talk to student union advice centres by landlords. So it's not just the case that, you know, they haven't got anywhere to live. When they have got somewhere to live, it's normally a property that they haven't been able to look at in person because they've had to do it. They've had to go online and go by pictures. There can be you know, slight sort of twists in the truth as to how close it is to campus or how easy it is to get to campus, how, I don't know, safe the neighbourhood is, whatever it is. But also, this is a group of students who aren't necessarily familiar with their housing rights because it might be different in their home country, all this sort of thing. Students who are told that they have to pay a year's rent up front so what happens when you pay a year's rent up front? Well, they can't get involved with all these these local rent strikes that home students hold where they withdraw their rent because they've paid it all up front. So what incentive does a landlord have to come fix something if they've got a whole year of rent paid, right? So, I mean, I remember looking in London at some student housing and a friend said to me, uh, she was she starting a master's and she was pointing to listings and she was saying anyone that looks too good you know that there are hundreds of international students with a trail of lost deposits in their wake um, because it's so common that 
that international students and their vulnerability is just taken advantage of in a completely unregulated uh, sector. Interesting, interesting. Ian, I guess the other, you know, the, the, the other allegation really is that whilst in the sort of folklore there will be a sort of seminar with, you know, students from, you know, nine or ten different countries sharing cultural experiences and so on, that actually over the past couple of years what we're more likely to see is very, very large cohorts from single countries on um, either business studies or health courses where that kind of cultural exchange, that kind of interaction that we talk to ourselves about in the in the folklore isn't really happening. And there is that question, isn't there, about assimilation, integration, community on campus and so on? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think this, this, this comes to a question of curriculum design, uh, the way in which we build uh, courses. Uh, at Coventry, we have a, we have a diversity index which comes from um, from uh, from biology, actually, a way of measuring the diversity of nationality on uh, on courses with specific aims, so that where where there are courses with single or two or three nationalities, you know, that we have a, a specific action to uh, to try and uh, diversify that uh, that population. Um, then the curriculum design, making sure that we um, that we um, focus on. Um, uh, bringing those voices to the fore, making sure that they are are, are loud and uh, part of the uh, part of the story, really important. So, curriculum design important to 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 bring out those stories to make sure that those people can take part. Um, it really goes to the conversation we're going to have about belonging and um, about inclusion, which is I think a really interesting part of the Wonky Report. Um, that that from nationality perspective as well as from ethnicity and from social disadvantage it's, it's really important that we uh, bring that uh, into curriculum design and making sure that we re- rethink our universities the way in which we provide service including accommodation and just a very quick comment on accommodation i think the accommodation story those catastrophic stories of international students being exploited Absolutely, we have to we have to do something about that. That's really, you know, cruel and um, uh, and exploitative, and it's just not a nice part of, of of our society. The housing question is is, however, really very interesting. Interestingly, more international students, yes, apply pressure in the immediate, but they also bring. Uh, purpose-built student accommodation providers in larger quantities that bring investment into cities that that then develop student accommodation in different ways because um, the, the, there's opportunities to uh, one of course to make money but uh, opportunities to build better types of accommodation that are more suitable to the population and I think we just have to challenge not challenge um, in this conversation but challenge what the previous Home Secretary was talking about the numbers of international students who come with dependents is a small subset of the total population and a very small subset of the population uh, and so I don't think we should allow that narrative to uh, to gain too much um, too much credence. Heidi just on the, on the on the kind of wider financial model we, we are in a situation where all around the UK the unit of resource is frozen that means it's you know, it's tumbling in real terms, given where inflation is. And to some extent, I don't think this is universal, but it's almost universal. Universities are kind of plugging holes in budgets by recruiting significant numbers of international PGT students. Now, doesn't that mean that, you know, that doesn't half make the sector 
you know, um, precarious when it comes to the vagaries of home secretaries that might be in and out the door every five minutes, amendments to the points-based system and so on. It's, is it, isn't it a dangerous thing to become dependent on from a financial modelling point of view? So, you know, putting my cards firmly on the table, I don't work in a university anymore. But when I did work in universities, this was obviously a topic of conversation. You know, uh, there is a risk there of having a dependence. And all universities who recruit international students will be aware of that. So I've got no answers to that, just that universities are aware of this. Um, And yes, it is a big risk. Sunday, I, I guess, you know, I mean, j- j- just finally on this, you know, the, the, the other allegation that comes through relatively regularly is that, you know, to some extent what the UK is selling here is an immigration route and a chance to, you know, permanently relocate to the UK where actually the kind of education is relatively separate. D- does that Does that matter, that allegation, that, you know, what the UK is kind of doing is propping up the funding of HE through the dangled carrot of a potential immigration route rather than the education per se? I think we have to be really careful with uh, when we're sort of looking at students reasons to sort of go to university because through obviously everyone comes to get a degree that's you know the point like one of the points of going to university but everyone comes to university for like a variety of reasons and that's not just international students that's also like home students and um home students we have to bear in mind also migrate to go to the institution that they want to go to it just happens to be that they migrate across the country and not across borders but you know I don't ever see anyone turning around to a home student and saying oh you're at a London institution but did you also want to live in London like that's well actually they do but it's like that's a reasonable reason to have and I don't think I don't know I just think it's a bit silly to be like oh, they're they're coming here, but they want to stay here after their degree. Like, why is it such a bad outcome if we retain educated and skilled workers (laughs) for (laughs) to work and to contribute to the country and the economy? Like, do we want do we want international students to come and then sort of take their skill set away again? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, surely we would want to make use of their of what they've learned at university but excellent now let's see who's been blogging for us this week my name's Anne-Marie Canning and I'm the CEO of the Brilliant Club I've got an article on Wonky this week all about how we can empower parents to help their children access higher education Uh, it's all about how community organizing helps us to build a movement that started in South London called Parent Power and how that has grown to become a nationwide movement of mums, dads, grandmas, granddads, carers who are helping their children access university and taking down the barriers that are standing in their way. Hopefully it's a a positive and cheering article. It's got a special story about my own mum, Judy, who even 15 years after I went to university is still the person you find in our local ASDA if you want to apply through UCAS to go to university. Now, next up this week, we've published some new research on belonging at university. Heidi, what did we discover? Oh, lots of things. So, um, great report, Sunday and others. Very well done on this one. Um, Just let me focus on the things, the sort of pillars of what you came up with for belonging. So, there was connection, inclusion, support and autonomy. And if I just pick out a few of the things that resonated with me in that, so that connection bit, I was thinking back to my own university experience, which I know was millions of years ago, but um, 
I didn't make that many connections with my classmates. I made lots of connections with my flatmates and with the people that I socialised with uh, in clubs and societies. And I thought that it was interesting that that came out in the report that, you know, staff thought the biggest piece for connection would be in the class, whereas actually students were saying it was, um, you know, much more around who you socialised with, who you lived with, but that there's more work to do on that making connections in the class. So the bit that, that really resonated with me around inclusion was the comment by the medical student um, where they were saying that, you know, medical textbooks weren't very diverse. And I've been reading the, the book Invisible Women by Caroline, and I can never remember her second name. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And she, yeah, a really good book. And she made exactly that that point. So I just felt that really, really resonated with me. And then support, student support. And I think the thing that I've observed, again, when I worked in universities, which I don't now, was that there was often a misconception between each party of what support actually was. So there was a comment from a student that said they'd, you know, they'd spoken to lots of people, but they'd not got any support. And I thought, I think the university would have thought, oh, that person's had lots of contact. They've got support. And, you know, sometimes trying to understand what it is people actually mean by support. Um, yeah. And then the autonomy bit, the feedback, again, I thought was was really interesting about having positive feedback, um, ways of engaging to improve yourself. Um, and autonomy is a really hot topic, isn't it, uh, around when you go off to university? Ian, what stood out for you? What stood out for me was, um, well, first of all, it's lovely to see written some of the things that we've been talking about and sort of playing around with over over, over so many years. Now we need to get really systematic and serious about uh, delivering this sort of ability to, to belong and recognising that every single one of our students is an individual uh, and that we actually need to create lots of ways to uh, to connect to the university that not all our students are residential by any stretch of the imagination, that many are travelling great distances to come to study. And so how do you, what you set up and how you set things up and how you create those connections is has to be different. That idea of inclusion in the classroom, making sure that we have hooks for everyone to feel connected to, to their discipline, really important. The points that were made about support, about being able to uh, provide real support, proper, you know, I'm sorry to use these terms, but customer service that is, um, you know, I'm, I'm truly dissatisfied as a customer if all I'm given is the same answer over and over again. Actually, we need to listen to our students and understand the sorts of support that they're asking for and, and properly engage in that conversation. That's going to take some rethinking of our organisational structures. So all of those things were just music. And, you know, I've been talking with people like Anne-Marie Canning over many years about this sense of belonging and making sure that we, um, that we uh, drive universities in that direction. Sunday, when I really zoom out from this, one of the things I'm, I'm sort of struck by is a lot of it feels like we're explaining something that used to sort of happen by magic, perhaps when people, when the student body was more homogenous or when people could spend more time on campus or 
um, you know, when there were just fewer people in a community. And and isn't there a danger that it, this is all very goose and golden egg? We, we, we end up kind of over-analyzing every aspect of kind of human interaction when really we should just be thinking about whether courses or universities have got too big. Oh, interesting question. I mean, the th- the thing, this is uh, something I was writing about. On the- I'm playing right into that uh, meme of yours where you say, I throw a question at people that is hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I, this is why I prefer Mark hosting, honestly. He doesn't ask me <laughs> questions. But yeah, no, it's a difficult question, but like it is important as well because I talk about this on the site actually um, about how, you know, we have a ever-growing and diversifying sector um, and with that comes two things. One comes that loss of the close community because, you know, it becomes this huge, you know, tens of thousands of students and, you know, uh, well, if you look at the, the models in America that have been coming up, you know, more hundreds of thousands of online students. So, you know, you get these really, really big institutions. And yeah, that does, you do lose a sense of community. Um, and there are ways around that. So we talk a little bit in the report about how, you know, it is practically impossible. And I, I don't mean that as a, it's almost impossible. I mean, it is in a practical sense, impossible for a lecturer in a, you know, in a lecture theatre of 200 people to learn every single one of their names. But there are ways around this, right? And these are tiny, tiny little tweaks. A lot of the things we say in the report is that these things aren't necessarily radical, but they're things that, you know, we've looked at uh, case studies of action research type thing and seen that it's working and we have evidence for and, and we're just putting these forward as recommendations, which is why we're so grateful for everyone in the sector to be submitted the projects that they're working on and the initiatives that they run, because it gave us that really good bird's eye view oversight of what works and we can link up, okay, well, this initiative's happening in here, something similar's happening here, here's the you know, it was very, very sort of over, overview of it all. But with the with the lecture theatre, um all that happened was the the lecturer put uh, pl- place cards with the students' names on in front of them. And when he asked them a question, he just read their name out. And the students knew, the students knew that he didn't know their name, that he was just reading it out. But it did increase their sense of belonging. It made them feel feel better. Now, no one on the report working on it is a sort of, you know, social psychologist. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't know exactly what's happening. And so there was actually some interesting um, discussion on Twitter where someone had said something like, oh, you know, wonky uh, correlation doesn't mean causation. And I was thinking like, well, no, but like we're not saying that we can point to what's happening here. We're not like absolutely micro analyzing this because one, we haven't got the qualifications to and we don't have the time to. But like, I do think that there is value in looking at what what's working and seeing what's coming out. I think the example that was used was okay. So this many commuter stu- this many uh, commuter students have low mental health, and this many commuter students don't feel like they belong at university. That doesn't mean that not belonging at university causes low mental health. And I was like, yeah, but that's not what the report is saying. What the report is saying is here is a massive data set. Here is a group of students that are you know, scoring low in certain areas that we know impact student outcomes. And therefore, why don't we look at that group and possibly identify a third reason why this group might be scoring low in these things? Is it that commuter students have multiple responsibilities? Is it that they're from a low socioeconomic background? And I think 
as I said, nowhere in the report are we ever saying, and again, particularly when it comes to mental health, I think that's really important, you know, that we're not clinical practitioners. Um, but I do think there's value in pointing to where patterns exist in the student body. Now, on the, the other side of it is that with a diversifying sector, we have ever diversifying student needs. And I'm not saying that a diversifying sector is a bad thing. I'm not saying we should have a homogenous student body. I'm saying, well, in the report, we make the point is that we cannot be constantly playing this game of catch up with student needs. We want we want diverse students to come to the institution. There's there's heaps of evidence that that show that widening participation students uh, benefit institutions. Um because you know they create a diversity of um, perspective, um, but what I'm saying, what, what we argue for in the report is to move away from a, a deficit model and to a sort of always accessible model. Um, so yeah, lots, <laughs> lots of lots and lots of things there. I mean, the report is about forty something pages long, and I think I think we did we definitely cut that down. It was definitely about double that. Like it was a real case of like kill your darlings process where we were having to get it to a, a size that could be published um but yeah so like all i can say is please please read the report because i do think with blogs and even the event you know we're so pressed for time and there's so much richness in it which is also why i'm really happy that we've just renewed our partnership with pearson to carry the research on and dive deeper into the findings because there's just yeah so much more to be done good stuff and uh, we uh, as sunday said we held an event on the uh, report and the findings earlier in the week let's hear a couple of clips it was really clear from the staff survey that, you know, support was something which needed to be not just the remit of one person. You know, it wasn't just the academic lead. It wasn't just the personal tutor. It's something which is absolutely a shared responsibility integrated across the entire institution and not housed in one specific place. And as Sunday explained, when it's when it's when it's so confusing to the student and when it wasn't integrated and, and there wasn't the communication there, for that support, it really resulted in students being frustrated, confused, exasperated, just terribly upset at times when it came to understanding the system that was in place to support them. And again, they were largely positive, I should say, once that support was accessed. Um, and I'll just reiterate that mental health was seen as particularly difficult to evidence if they needed support. Um, particularly, we've talked about assessment. That was an area where students really said, I, you know, I how do, I, how do I get mitigation? How do I get an extension? I can't access a learning support plan. If I have a wave of depression, how am I going to, you know, I need the extra time, but I just haven't been able to get it. And so quite on the left there about going round and round in circles. Um, and interestingly, the research did show that we, you can construct this sense of support and belonging right from the beginning with the right tools. So for example, one example we had was by a, a survey Actually, I see the quote on the left hand side there, the survey that butterfly affected everything in the future, just being placed, having that belonging constructed, being placed through the survey answers with two like minded people who didn't want to do Freshers Week, who didn't want to go out drinking, who expressed that they like to stay in, you know, just understanding them and putting them together in accommodation. She's that person I remember was a focus group person who's still friends with those people, um, even right into her postgraduate career. Um, and yeah, just to touch briefly again on the deficit uh, deficit model that we've talked about, the final two quotes speak to this. And this is really where it had the greatest potential to remove. We have the, the opportunity to remove those ingrained feelings of unbelonging or otherness or imposter syndrome. But where support is housed 
elsewhere where that student had to go and find it and, and make, make themselves stand out and be different. And it wasn't within the course. It wasn't easy for them just to be integrated into everything they were doing. You know, students had to view themselves as, as deficient or less than to, to access it. And it clearly, through the research, worked against this sense of inclusion, support and connection. And I know this is one of those common sense things Now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With academic registrar and sector historian Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. So, one of the issues du jour is the issue of a commuting university. What are we doing for commuting students? Well, um, one of the biggest reforms in the 19th century was to set up a commuter university. Um, what originally was called the University of London, we know it now as University College London. And it was set up explicitly to be a commuter university because the vices of the residential university, Oxford and Cambridge, were so obvious to everyone that you wanted to avoid that at all costs. So um, the pitch comes in a, a staged letter to the Times from Thomas Campbell to Lord Broome, in which he sets out a kind of prospectus for a university. He goes on to, to, to embellish it some more. But the prospectus is, is pretty clear that there's a group of people who are not being catered for in the higher education sector and they are the middling rich. This is the group we need to go after, he says. These are the people who have some money, uh, can't afford the expense of sending their uh, kids, uh, their sons, uh, sadly, uh, all the stuff is about sons. We can't explore the expense of sending our sons off to university, it will cost you far too much. Uh, so, we need something for them to stay at home and commute to university. Now, Campbell works this all out. He works out how many middling rich families are within a two hour walk of UCL. Uh, uh, so, if he puts it in Bloomsbury, he knows how many people, you know, what his catchment is. Um, he sets out what might happen to them. So, that they go, they'll come, they'll have breakfast early at home, uh, they'll come in for several hours, uh, receive instruction, they can uh, stay in the university in that time, and then they'll go home again, uh, always in the hours of daylight, uh, to their parents' houses, where the parents will be in charge of them. So, and he says in the letter, their parents might know how every minute of every day of their life was employed. So the idea that parents are completely in charge, uh, in the original um, sense of the perspectives of the place, he, he imagines a weekly report going home with the students uh, to show what they've done during that week. And the idea is, is to save vast amounts of money uh, for uh, families that might have a couple of thousand pounds a year income, uh, and this won't be ruinous. Uh, it won't be ruinous in terms of the cost, but also it won't be ruinous in terms of sending your son away where you have no idea what they're doing for eight weeks, uh, and all that you might get is bills sent back um, from uh, their ruinous life in Oxford or Cambridge. So you've got much more control of them. It's also really important because what you do on Sunday is your decision. So it doesn't matter what church you go to because it's not the University of London's problem which church you go to on Sunday. So it can avoid the question of religious tests because it's not in charge of your morality. So it doesn't matter to them how you pray um, you can get on and do it. So as far as they're concerned, that gets them out of the problem about dissenters, gets them the problem about uh, Jews. They're in a position where it that's not their problem. So if you can come and study the instruction, your parents are going to look after your morality. That's not our job. So they won't teach religion because there's no need for you to be taught religion because you'll be going to the, you know, the church of your choice. Um, you won't need to get it from us. Uh, 
it's full of really um, up-to-date ideas. So in order to get it going, um, they need uh, to set up a company. So it's set up a, a company and it's supposed to have subscribers. And the good news about being a subscriber is that you pay your £100 and then you can send a student. So as a shareholder, you get a guaranteed place at university for your son uh, as a kind of recompense for that. So that's an interesting prospect. Um, uh, uh, would have been good for the new College of the Humanities if they'd gone for that route. Um, so you can set it up. The uh, professoriate aren't going to be funded out of um, endowments. They're just going to collect the student fees. So they're going to be paid out of the student fees. Uh, so that's how they're going to get funded. They're going to get spread across lots more uh, disciplines. And to mark the whole thing off, um, it emerges very quickly that what they want to do is have much more open study. Uh, Campbell goes on a trip to Berlin to look at the new university there. Uh, he receives correspondence about how the University of Virginia is set up. So he wants to have a much more elective system. Students can study whatever they want. He brings in professors in all sorts of practical subjects. So it's not just learning the classics. Uh, and so he sets up a, a, a different kind of understanding of how that should be. Pretty soon, there's a reaction because how can this place uh, be saying it's going to offer a degree if there's no religious instruction, if no one has a sense of the morals of, of, the, of the men that have passed through it? So the kind of reactionary uh, approaches the Tories set up their own campaign to set up a college. Uh, and they get the King's support, which is why King's College um, gets to be set up in opposition to the University of London. And it sets up to do pretty much the same kind of thing, commuting students, um, a wider range of uh, subjects, but with religious education at, at its heart. So they want to be a different kind of setup, but within the sphere of the Church of England, because that's important to them. So the two colleges get off um, issuing certificates because they don't have degree awarding powers, because Parliament won't award degree awarding powers to um, uh, UCL, as we, as we know it now. Uh, and so eventually the compromise comes in 1836 that the University of London is set up as a kind of effectively a government department to award degrees. So if you were looking for an exciting parallel with the OFS, uh, the OFS validation powers uh, to set up and, and approve colleges that come to it and say, can, can we have a degrees? You could say, well, there's a parallel in 1836 in terms of the original University of London. What's interesting, of course, is the University of London has to say what's in the degree. So that takes away some of the reforming uh, zeal of, of what had been at UCL because they now have to conform to this this new uh, BA degree that the University of London puts together. But from that springs A, the ability for someone to be taught at a college that isn't part of uh, the direct University of London, so that enables places all over the country and in turn all over the empire to teach the University of London degree. Uh, but it also means the University of London can start to think about other subjects. So it starts to think, well, what would it look like to have a, just a science degree? Uh, and so they can start to think about that. And so there's a petition to have a, the first science degree. They can start to think about what it would look like. Um, there's a petition to set up a social science degree. So they can start to expand the range of subjects uh, that come into the university and specialisms can develop from there. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Now, finally, this week, the Office for Students has published its review into blended learning. And Sunday, there are some interesting findings. Right. So, uh... <laughs> Um, they so they launched a review into blended learning uh, in March uh, this year, and this was after um, there was a lot of press coverage. And oh my goodness, it was when Michelle Donnellan was still rocking around, which feels like a decade ago now, to be honest. Um, but there was this idea that um, students were somehow being sort of like fobbed off with record recorded lecture lectures, and like. I remember at the it was it was a happy event she was talking about and she was saying that uh every institution has to get students back in the classroom and face to face um because you know online learning is is so inferior and um she kept saying that if students can go to cinemas and they can go to <laughs> lecture theaters I don't know why that part stayed in my head um so um, Michelle Donnellan had a real bee in her bonnet about this. There was loads of press coverage about it. And I think universities were quite unfairly portrayed as these sort of like cash grabbing institutions that were sort of palming off like a cheap version of what was promised. Um, but I do think that like it is important to also like acknowledge that digital transformation, even though it's a relatively one off cost, obviously there are costs con- like associated with continuing it, but like the digital sort of quick digital transformation of a lot of courses in the pandemic did cost a lot of money for institutions to implement. But again, I do recognise that that's a relatively one-off cost. So Susan Orr, who's pro-vice-chancellor at De Montford, was appointed to lead um, a panel. And um, it's interesting this actually, because the students and staff on the panel were only from six providers and covering only 16 courses across four subjects areas um so that the subject areas were humanities uh, medicine natural sciences en- and engineering and performing arts um but we don't know who the providers were um and we don't know who the students were we don't know like the diversity of that panel either which is like obviously when you look at the diversity of provider in uh in higher education there are going to be providers that are uh, better equipped to providing online learning than others there are going to be demographics that benefit from it more than others um so i am i am intrigued as to the ve- what you know comparatively low <laughs> like research sample and then the output of the review um which was quite um delayed um to to say the least um was a little bit more pragmatic and less ideological than the initial tone uh suggested at the original launch and we got um three uh, 23 recommendations of well established uh, good practice um so things like making sure last year that the lectures online um are not out of date if they're from last year um and that staff should receive uk psf aligned professional training and teach to, to be able to teach online um, and also the information about the study mode should be uh, clearly communicated to students um, and they obviously published an accompanying response good um, and, 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 yeah. and look you know we'll we'll, we'll 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 come to a couple of the recommendations in a, in a moment uh, Heidi I know you've got to go but just but just quickly you've done lots uh, in this kind of digital transformation space what what, what stood out for you so first of all welcome the review and I thought the recommendations were all very 
pragmatic um, and sensible. GIST did a big survey, Digital Experience Insight Survey. So 33 and a half students were surveyed and we asked them about um, how they wanted to learn. And what was really interesting was that it was, I think it was 42% wanted the full face-to-face piece. 45% wanted that hybrid mix. So using technology to support their learning. And I think we forget that again at our peril. There is this blended piece is here to stay. Um, the report also mentions digital skills for staff. Um, I think that's one of the things, again, that comes up time and time again. We did put a big expectation on staff to just go away and learn how to do the technology, first of all, but also the pedagogy. You have to think about the pedagogy. The technology is sort of an enabler to all of that. Ian, this is probably the first run at a kind of new way of doing regulation, isn't it? You know, OFS has appointed a bunch of experts. This isn't, um, you know, the kind of QAA style of doing things it's about a particular theme they've gone in and then OFS has related that back to its minimum standards framework How, you know d- does it does it hang together with the things in OFS's response to the blended learning review that you raised your eyebrows uh, first of all I, I sort of welcome the piece of work and echo the points that uh, Heidi's just made um, the, the recommendations are pragmatic I, I'm disappointed to some extent that the the, the, the tone it felt a little bit sort of reluctant a little bit negative um which um was a great shame it's a real uh, opportunity as as heidi said also many students want this blend of uh, of learning i need to just disagree a little bit with something sunday said which is that the 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 online cost is a one-off it's not um if we're if we're serious about this it is a massive change to the way in which we invest in universities investing in the digital campus the virtual campus as though it were building new buildings and on an ongoing basis is is going to be really important i've published quite a lot recently with um Emerge Education and um, JISC on the the digital university and the role of edtech uh, in in transforming education. Um, so welcome the report. I like the approach, and if OFS are going to take that approach of inviting experts in to to lead short pieces of work that lead to pragmatic recommendation, I think actually that's yeah. I think you're right, Jim. It's a it's a, it's a real positive step, um, and can be very useful to to the sector. So um, good, but uh, work to do on tone, and that might be, of course, because the political starting point was from a particular position. If we can start from a neutral position, then I think the studies can even be um, more useful to HE and therefore beneficial to students. Sunday, some of the reaction I saw on social media was effectively along the lines of, well, OFS is saying that X has to happen, but that's just impossible given the resource constraint or, you know, given the autonomy of staff or, you know, whatever that might be. Does this set up, you know, this kind of response from OFS, does it set up opposition between students and academics or is it helpful in kind of clarifying what all students ought to be entitled to? I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not clear what, you know, whether it's in the end really helpful or really unhelpful in terms of that overall endeavour. I guess the thing, the thing that I, and again, that's <laughs> because I've been doing this for long in research and my brain is just in it. But I think the thing that I, um, the thing that came out of the belonging research and uh, around students and their expectations and uh, their needs was the need for flexibility, right? It was the need to be flexible and adaptive. And I guess, I guess my sort of, I don't know, like my, my sort of reflection on it is that 
like where at what point is there sort of a prescriptive apps like i get obviously i get there's minimum standards and expectations i get that but like especially when it comes to like online and hybrid learning like if you watch the little youtube video which is really funny actually because i i didn't pay attention to the first 10 seconds because i thought it was an ad before the video but it is the actual video because it's got ad like kind of ad music in the background but like if you watch the youtube video it's saying like um you know the university needs to clearly communicate to students i think it's a student facing video for information or applicant facing facing video and it's saying like you need to clearly communicate to the university needs to clearly communicate to you like the amount of online and in-person learning that you're going to have and then you know if you don't get this call us up (laughs) Um, notify us um but like that doesn't really fit with what students have been telling me for the last year around I would like it to be I would like to have a lot of flexibility as to whether I access my course online or in person so how do we measure it at what level do we measure it do we measure at provider level do we measure at course level do we measure at the individual student level module level to to the individual student how much online and in person like it it's a little bit um I just don't know how it's going to be applied, is what I'm saying. It's, it's, yeah, I think I need a bit more clarity on that. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, Acast or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do pop over to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Heidi, Ian, Sunday, DK, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.